Hello, and welcome to another Centre for Independent Studies webinar. I'm Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst at the CIS. Today, I'm going to be talking to Frank Ferruti. Frank is a sociologist, social commentator, and author of 24 books, including How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear, Paranoid Parenting, and his latest, Why Borders Matter. But most importantly, Frank is a previous guest at the CIS. Frank, welcome back. Nice to be back. Given your work around fear and the climate of fear that we have in the, at the moment, I think that's where we're going to start. In March of this year, you wrote, the most important change in the way individuals are viewed in the 21st century is the shift from a presumption of resilience towards defining individuals by their vulnerability. Can you just expand on that? What do you mean by that? Well, I did a, a little study uh, uh, looking at different disasters and responses to it. And I began uh, by looking at research, the very first research that was carried out in the 1930s, all the way through now. And what was very interesting was that whenever a disaster occurred, an earthquake or a major fire or a pandemic, it was always assumed that people, by and large, would have the moral and the uh, physical resources to be able to deal with uh, distress. They would be able to deal with the pain and, and adversity. And particularly, communities were seen to be able to provide individuals with the, the strength to deal with difficult circumstances. But by the time we got to the 70s and the 80s, we began to use a word that has never been used before in the English language, which is vulnerability. I mean, today we talk about the vulnerable or vulnerable people. But you have to realize that in the 1960s, that, that word was never used. The only context within which vulnerability was used was in relation to physical phenomena like bridges or buildings. We talked about vulnerable buildings. And at a certain point, it began to be used to define people and to give the impression that people, uh, children as well as adults, are by and large um, more likely to be vulnerable than to be resilient. In other words, vulnerability became a first-order diagnosis of individual personalities. And we hope that if we did the right things, we could make people a bit more resilient. But we never assume that people are sufficiently resilient to be able to, on their own, cope with a, a pandemic or any form of major distress. When you're talking about those earlier disasters, and you said the assumption was that people just were resilient. so. In those times, there was no resilience training or toughening people up or making them less vulnerable. It just was the way it was. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And in fact, there's a very interesting research carried out in Topeka, Kansas, where they looked at two small towns. One was hit by a hurricane and the other one was, uh, over, wasn't. And when they looked at the population 10 years later on, they discovered that the town that had a that was devastated by this disaster had much better mental health outcomes. People much kind of felt better about themselves. They survived. They felt really good about the world. Then the next town where there was no uh, disaster at all, where there was no casualties, there was no buildings that were destroyed. And I think there's a lot of research uh, in, in, at that time and later on that showed that actually people are, are in a sense uh, wired to deal with these kinds of events we're in fact far more able to 
deal with distress than we imagine. Because today, we assume that the very minute there's the slightest hint of disappointment or distress, then that's a, a marker for a potential mental health issue. What sort of effect does that have on individuals? Because you said just before that, you know, we talk about vulnerable children, vulnerable people. If you sort of think as others as vulnerable or of yourself, what sort of psychological impact does that have? Well, in, in sociology, we use a concept called the cultural script. And what a cultural script does is it tells you how much distress you're supposed to put up with. It tells you how you should feel in difficult circumstances. And if you tell children as young as five or six that this is very difficult, you know, we have, we have to be protected from this experience, that you must wear a protective uh, sort of helmet uh, when you go to the playground, that when you need to be continually looked after and pampered by adults, then after, after a while, a lot of children do begin to play the part that this cultural script assigned to them. And children will begin to use a psychological vocabulary to discuss what you and I would call an ex existential problem. So they will use words, oh man, I'm really depressed. Oh, I feel extremely stressed out. They begin to sound like little Freuds by the time they're 9, 10, 11, and 12. And I think what, that, what it does is it creates a fulfilling prophecy so that people will then begin to report that staying under lockdown is, is having a mental health issue for them. And a lot of people then begin to actually experience uh, difficulties that are, I would argue, culturally induced rather than natural, rather than simply to do with their uh, physical uh, or biological makeup. Talking about this sort of, you know, people saying that they're depressed or stressed out as a cultural script or being culturally induced. I mean, over probably, I'd say, the last decade, perhaps a little bit more, we have had a lot of encouragement to talk about your feelings. We have Are You OK Day, where you're encouraged to reach out if you have difficulties or to ask your friends and family how they are. There's various mental health initiatives that encourage this sort of opening up of how you're feeling. Isn't, isn't that a good thing though, if people can say, look, I'm depressed, I'm stressed out, I'm having these difficulties with sort of a, it's almost a going up against the stiff upper lip mentality that people had for a while. Isn't it a good thing? Well, I think both are caricatures. The stiff upper lip is a caricature that we don't want to buy into. But uh, emotional incontinence is also a problem because if people are asked, how do you feel all the time? Then uh, I don't know about you, but after a while, I will find a lot of reasons to uh, explain to them that I'm not feeling all that well. This bothers me and, and that bothers me. And we begin to play a particular kind of role, uh, which is almost done semi-consciously. Uh, where increasingly we become aware of our, of our sense of powerlessness. So our, our passive side rather than our active side begins to kick in in terms of the way that we're behaving. And, and that, I think, has a, a, very, a, a real uh, important public health co consequence. Because the way that I look at it is if you look at when we began to talk about our feelings, which more or less occurred in the early 80s, when that was encouraged, that, that was really uh, validated by culture, if you look at the, the last 20, 40, 20 to 40 years, you'll, almost, you'll find that the more we talk about our feelings, the more we acknowledge our pain in public, the more mental health presentations go up. And it is fascinating when you look at it. You, you begin with, in a world where only a, a small number of boys have AD, ADHD, 
And by the time you get to the present day, you'll find that in some schools, a quarter of all young boys present themselves with ADHD. You know, so you'll find that these symptoms, which were very rare, all of a sudden begin to increase and increase and increase. And you never find, there's not a single instance where mental health presentations stabilize or actually fall. It increases all the time because that's, that's really what we're trying to do is to almost create a world where we're willing more and more people to, to feel that they have some mental health problems. You just said then how is, you know, talking about your feelings in public, presenting these things in public. And I know you've written before about the, the breakdown of in public and private life. Is that, is that one of the key differences that you're trying to get to? I mean, if you, if you talk about your feelings your, or your emotions with your spouse or your family in the privacy of your own home, and you, you could argue that's, that's what it's for, right? Particularly, particularly if, you're, if you're married, that's some part of the, the contract, but it's taking that out of the private realm and into the public sphere where it becomes a problem? In one sense, yes, because if I talk to a friend about my feelings, then that friend knows the context within which I live. They know a little bit about me. They know about the community within which I live. And therefore, there's the potential of being able to do something about it. There is a, a sense in which uh, uh, he, that person can almost intuitively uh, kind of work out the direction that maybe I should be moving in. And uh, very often, those conversations can be very helpful. But once it's taken out of that context and it becomes this kind of, uh, I'm just another number, an, another patient, another customer kind of situation, then what you get is both pro forma advice, kind of what I call template advice, which is often what you get. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the potential solution to that problem is taken out of my hands. And instead of uh, me having an agency or a, a sense of uh, or autonomy to be able to deal, deal with this particular issue, I become a passive patient or a passive customer. And once you're in that situation, it's much more difficult to climb out of that and to ever get to the point where you feel that you, you, know, you really are back in control, that you, you, have a, you have this ability now to deal with these particular difficulties. Do you think the, the government response to COVID, especially around things like lockdowns, telling people that they can't go outside, closing businesses, does that, in its, when they're legally enforceable, in, in some places they're just recommendations, but when it's legally enforced and in places like Victoria in Australia, there are very hefty fines if you don't comply. Does that contribute to a sense of powerlessness because your autonomy has been taken away? You're no longer in charge of managing your own risk of infection or spreading the disease. You have been told to stay indoors. It's a very difficult question, but experience shows that when you're faced with a disaster, a major public health problem that affects entire communities, I think the best way of dealing with that is uh, the application of common sense. Uh, because people living in a particular area, uh, in, in particular circumstances, know that the way you react to a pandemic in a rural town is very different than if you're living in a housing estate in the middle of Melbourne. And even within a, within a housing estate within a, within in Melbourne, the way you face uh, life and the, and the adversity is very different if you're a young kid than if you're an old person with uh, certain physical uh, difficulties. And it seems to me that whatever the government does, they need to have a place for the use of common sense. 
and they need to have a place for uh, allowing local initiatives to people so that individuals can exercise their autonomy, but also communities who know best what's going on within their parameters are able to apply uh, uh, any kind of restriction in line with the needs of that community. And therefore, you would expect to have a very differential response to these things, depending where you are. So I think that in that sense, the uh, one-size-fits-all kind of regulation that's been applied is, is really a, a managerial approach to a, to a problem that, is, that actually requires a community-type, more subtle uh, response. You say it's a managerial approach to the, the problem, but whenever politicians come out and explain why they're introducing restrictions, they always say they're following the evidence, that they're following the science. Isn't, isn't that how we want politicians to make policy based on evidence and science? I think you need evidence and science, but uh, the very language they use, following the evidence, indicates that the one thing that they're not doing is leading the response. In other words, they're, they're behaving like the followers of uh, scientific monographs rather than political leaders. And I think political leadership requires you to not just simply tick a box and say, I follow the evidence, but to look at everything. And, and there is more to life than scientific evidence. There is the uh, very important issue of how are people going to respond to whatever decision that you've taken? What are the needs of society? And in particular, politicians should first of all ask the question, where do we want to be a year from now? You know, what is the objective that we're struggling towards? And I think it's in that context that you discuss the evidence rather than allowing the, just following the evidence in that kind of blind way. Because if you do that, then you lose sight of the big picture, and, which is that there are much more issues at stake than simply the ones that are raised by the evidence, which itself is never uh, conclusive. It's not like the Ten Commandments, like the Bible, which is absolutely clear one way or the other. The evidence is, is usually uh, ones that uh, provide you with different options, uh, different scenarios, and, and therefore, instead of following it, you should be leading the response. And I think that uh, has been lost by a lot of political leaders. Do you think as well that the political leaders are either being pushed by fear or being pulled there? Because we were talking just before we started recording about how there's one side of the equation that seems to want more restrictions and that came out in some opinion polling recently in Victoria here where they were introducing more restrictions and people were saying things like they would be quite happy for COVID positive people to wear ankle bracelets so you could monitor where they were. It just It seemed like there, there was no limit to the restrictions that could be put on them. Is that, is that driven by fear? And also if leaders sense that their population, the people they're supposed to be leading are fearful, how do they address that? Because they'll often say, oh, what I'm doing is popular, but if the people are afraid, is that necessarily the best way to go? Well, uh, I'm not um, privy to the uh, ins and outs of the Australian situation other than what I read in the newspaper. I know in Europe there are three dynamics at work. There is the dynamic that's uh, kind of put in place by the politicians. There's the dynamic that uh, you kind of sense on the ground. And there's a very important dynamic that's very rarely discussed, which is the role of the media. So in the case of Britain, for example, I thought the politicians were really good in the beginning. I mean, Johnson's, Prime Minister Johnson's instincts were really good at the outset. 
But uh, as soon as COVID kicked in, and as soon as we had the beginning of, a, of, of, of people dying, the media went into overdrive, into kind of a semi-hysterical mode, and put a lot of pressure on the government to, uh, in a sense, to change their tact, give up their policies, and adopt a much more uh, sort of protective kind of approach, which had twofold problems. One was the government was seen to be disoriented. Uh, and secondly, the signals they sent were, were ones that confused a lot of people who became even more fearful, at least some of them, than they were before. And I think that what has happened since is that a lot of politicians feel the pressure from the media. You know, they really are worried in case something goes wrong, they're going to be uh, sort of crucified. And they've now become extremely worried about you know, their relationship to the electorate. And I think as a result of that, they are playing it very, very safe. They're all adopting very risk-averse policies to the point at which uh, the actual, you know, the use of common sense has been pretty much sidelined in almost every Anglo-American, uh, well, in America it's a bit more complicated, but almost every Anglo-American uh, circumstance. Just to stick with the media for a minute, you, you were just talking about then how they applied pressure. What is the impact of having things like, you know, we get daily reports of cases and deaths down to, you know, we have various premiers who lead the states here in Australia giving 45 minute, hour and a half long daily press conferences where they tell you exactly how many infections there are, exactly how many people are tested. There's, there's all these counters at the top of the newspaper sites. What, what effect does that constant barrage of information have on people? It, it, it has a really bad effect, particularly on children and young people. Uh, I think that one of the things I really resent more than anything is not the, the behavior of the government, but the fact that uh, you got this uh, symbiotic relationship between a large number of advocacy organizations with their own uh, causes and the media. So for example, you have all these groups saying, oh my God, the mental health of children is going to be utterly pulverized by this experience. We have to be really worried what's going to happen to children. And there's a constant stream of bad news about the likely impact of COVID on the children. And of course, once you begin to, you know, sort of communicate this idea, then the parents start freaking out, getting really worried about the kids. The kids pick up the signals and then they begin to play the role that this is like, uh, you know, you know, an existential threat to their very existence. And you do create problems that weren't there to begin with, or they might have been there, but you really inflate or amplify them. And I think in that sense, what the, this combination of advocacy organizations and the media has done is it created um, a, a set of problems uh, in, and constructed them in such a way that they elevate the difficulties that we now experience. And one thing that I've noticed, we did a little study down here in Kent is that a lot of people report that, that, that their behavior has changed quite a bit. It's almost like they become caricatures of themselves under the lockdown. And, and uh, they've all become amateur epidemiologists. They've all, you know, have got all the latest news at their fingertips. And instead of getting on with their lives, because you can still get on with your life, you become entirely wrapped up in this drama, uh, this media drama, which almost becomes a kind of reality pandemic, you know, where you every single time a death is reported, a picture is put on the TV screen, you almost feel it in a kind of personal way, which then draws you in into the whole drama in such a way that 
you don't have the, the means and the capacity to do something about it. You just become a voyeur in this um, media form of pandemic pornography. In the beginning, there was the fear of infection, you know, very, would you probably say a, a rational fear. You don't want to catch a, a potentially deadly disease. And then as it sort of went along, we had the fear of the mental health impacts of the lockdown, all these other things that you just outlined then. Is it, is it possible for, if you have sort of the overload of fear, can you become either paralyzed by it or almost have the opposite reaction where if you're constantly being barraged by, you know, everything's a disaster, everything's a cat catastrophe, can you just become apathetic and go, well, all of these things can't be a catastrophe, so maybe I'm just gonna stop listening? I think all of those reactions you mentioned are, are possible. And one of the interesting things about how fear works in this circumstance is it becomes very privatized and very fragmented. So, uh, for example, we have, on the one hand, the distinction between people who are demanding more regulations at the one end, they really want more restrictions. At the other end, you have people who are fed up with everything and basically want to get on with life. And they say, look, you know, I'm prepared to take risk. You know, I'm prepared to live with the consequences. But what's very interesting is that in between all that, you know, you're getting, you know, very kind of fragmented and privatized reactions. And I find that uh, extremely interesting that some people, as you describe, almost switch off. They don't listen to the news anymore. Or if they do listen, it goes in one, it goes through the other one. Other people become obsessed, obsessed by it. And you're having this very differential uh, uh, kind of form of fear. And again, uh, for me, what's very interesting about this pandemic, from a, a research point of view, is that unlike other pandemics, which bring people together, where you have a, a display of real solidarity, where the response tend to be reasonably homogeneous, in this instance, certainly in, in, in Europe, the reaction is much more fragmented. So instead of bringing us together, it becomes very divisive. The most extreme example of that is in the United States, where there are big debates about masks. I mean, masks, whether you wear them or not, becomes this political issue. Instead of saying, well, okay, I'll wear a mask, but I don't care if you don't. I don't wear a mask, but I, I don't care if you do. It becomes a statement of your identity. And I think that's a, a very new uh, way of reacting to a major disaster, something that's, I think, from my research, is certainly quite unprecedented. What do you think has contributed to this fragmented response as you describe it? I'm struggling with that. I think there are many, uh, many, many uh, uh, sort of possible explanations. I think one of them uh, that, that hasn't been discussed is the role of identity politics or the obsession with identity that preceded the pandemic. You have, you have to remember that everything that happens in the pandemic is an intensified expression of trends that pre-existed it. So uh, already before the pandemic, identity politics was pretty strong. People that doesn't simply mean that identity politics is about gay marriage or it's not simply about trans issues or about abortion. Identity politics is also about your own identity, about you know, who you are and the clothes you wear, your, your haircut and all the, all the other things. And I think the ease with which mask wearing has become an identity or not wearing a mask has become an If I don't wear a mask, I'm a real man. If I wear a mask, I'm very sensitive and responsible to the rest of society. So... The, uh, the way in which individual personal responses have been overlaid by identity-related issues and the weaponization of identity, I think has been one very, very important factor in this. 
And I think the second uh, important element in this is that many Western societies were already struggling with, uh, with, with, with developing and evolving a, a common moral consensus about what a good life is, what the world is really all about. There was already a highly heterogeneous and differentiated moral universe within the world, which basically meant that the way people regard what is good and what is bad, what is desirable, what isn't desirable, was already fairly fragmented to begin with. And what the pandemic has done is, is really give, gave that a very heightened, intensified expression. Do you have an optimistic or pessimistic look as, as we sort of go out of this and the, the virus slowly starts to fade and we get back to, I'm not going to use the phrase new normal, we start, we, start, we start easing more restrictions and getting out of the lockdown. Do you think that you know, people sort of going to take stock and think, well, maybe those identity issues that you outlined aren't the best way to look at the world, or is it going to be double down and everyone's just going to go into their mask-wearing or non-mask-wearing silos, metaphorically speaking, even more? I think in the medium term, the polarisation of public life will become stronger. I mean, it's already very polarized and the, and the bubbles that we live in are already uh, there and they, they were there even before the pandemic. Now the bubbles have been given a public health form of validation. Um, and I, it's almost become a metaphor, certainly in Britain, where people talk about your bubble and they really do mean your bubble in a kind of positive sense. I think that's going to get stronger and stronger in the medium term. But the way that I understand the unfolding situation is that at some point the situation will have to change because uh, I think that more and more people will realize that you cannot suppress the virus. You know, the virus you know, cannot be defeated in an almighty battle. The, the virus is something that you've got to learn to live with for a very long time. And that's, that's really the uh, evidence that, that that's really what the evidence seems to suggest. And therefore, we're going to have to, at some point to understand that we're going to have to make a distinction between the way we deal with a health issue, a threat to our health, and the way we deal with our public life, you know, politics and culture and all those kinds of issues. Because unless we regain a measure of control over society's destiny, rather than just simply see it as an almighty battle against the virus, that's, you know, we essentially come to an impasse, to a kind of... Uh, sense of stasis. So I think that it is only a matter of time before, you know, people will get their act together, communities will get their act together. But certainly for the short term and the medium term, I'm really worried about the uh, kind of sense of uh, moral paralysis uh, that we're going through. So that's, a, that's an interesting phrase, moral paralysis, that you just ended on there. Can you just expand on that a little bit? What do you, what do you mean by moral paralysis? I think that moral paralysis uh, in our circumstance means the fear of making judgments. I, I think in any case, even before the pandemic, we uh, celebrated the idea of non-judgmentalism, that we don't judge. You know, the word judgmental is, is, has a negative connotation in the English language. We don't like judgy people. But of course, we need to make judgments because... Uh, our moral universe depends on you and I being able to say that that's good and that's evil, that that's right and that's wrong. And I think that what has happened is that our capacity to make moral judgments, uh, in other words, asking the question, you know, what is really good, uh, what needs to be, you know, what, 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 what a good life is all about, 
is a question that we're ignoring all the time, because if all we think about is what the evidence says, what science says, then the sphere of morality will become entirely marginalized in our world. And I, and I say this not in a moralistic way. I say this just because when you bring up a child, when you have a relationship with somebody, you know, we are continually uh, not just having a physical relationship or a financial relationship, we also have a moral relationship. We're trying to do good things to one another. And we try to do that within communities. And if we're scared of making judgments, uh, which our politicians are worried about at the moment, and also as individuals, then you do get to this sense of moral paralysis where we lose sight of what is, you know, what is the good things in life that we like to strive towards and, 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 and make things happen. I, I agree that we have a, a very uh, negative view of what you just term judgy people. It's always used as a, as a put down, but uh, for mine, what I think this pandemic has shown is that in certain circumstances, we are more than willing to judge people. I mean, we have hashtag COVIDiots trending for a long time. I've, I've, I've written about how I think that's an, an awful trend. You know, we have the, the media going around and finding COVID rule breakers and putting them on the front page. It's all over social media. So it seems like in a, in a pandemic, it's sort of people bring out that judgy person. Yeah, you're right, because uh, as, as I wrote in a chapter in my last book on borders, is that uh, the flip, flip side of non-judgmentalism is a very kind of promiscuous way of judging. And I think, you know, uh, what's very you know, worrying for me is that we're making judgments about things that we don't have the right to make judgments about. So if a, a woman on Twitter has a miscarriage, then everybody lays in and says, you know, did you drink alcohol? Did you smoke cigarette? Did you do something wrong? You know, you must have been irresponsible. We're making judgment about a person that lives 2,000 miles away whose circumstances we know nothing about. But the so-called non-judgmental people suddenly feel able to make those kinds of uh, petty, uh, sort of empty kind of judgments. So, you know, in a sense, you know, non-judgmentalism uh, coexists and runs in parallel with a kind of amoral form of uh, sort of promiscuous judgment, which is not based upon the evaluation of, of basically the virtues uh, that we live by. It's not based upon any kind of normative uh, sort of standpoint, but becomes merely a, a way of lashing out and hitting out at people, uh, a kind of frustrated, you know, sort of form of, uh, and, and display of, of spiritual emptiness almost. Do you think that lashing out is sort of what's fed into what has been termed cancel culture? The idea that, you know, particular individuals or brands or buildings, names of streets, it just seems like absolutely anything is up for grabs at random. So there's, there's no sort of formula for it. It's just, you know, all of a sudden you, you can't eat those lollies or that statue has to be torn down or that has to be renamed. It just, it seems all of a sudden, do you think that's part of the, the judgy, promiscuous judginess as you just termed it? Uh, it, it is, I, um, but underlying it, it is a much more uh, insidious dynamic, which is very rarely recognized, which is that the obsession with identity that we have where you become so concerned with who, yourself, you know, who you are, where you uh, judge people or see people who are like you in a different light than other kinds of people, 
means that you become insulated from the human passions and, and the human feelings that we have towards one another. And I think that what identity uh, obsessions and the weaponization of identity has done is we almost uh, dehumanize other kind of people. We, we regard those kinds of people as not on the same moral plane than we are. And when you listen to uh, uh, protesters and demonstrators, the way they talk, it, it, it has a kind of uh, almost like uh, as if, as if uh, they read the script from the Game of Thrones, you know, and they kind of live by that kind of horrific kind of culture. I don't know if you've seen pictures of, uh, and, uh, of kind of Black Lives demonstrators going into restaurants and people are eating there and they're saying, you know, go like this, say Black Lives Matter. And it's almost like, you know, there's a kind of insidious uh, semi-totalitarian dynamic at work whereby they feel uh, what they are really saying is that you eating there are a lesser form of human being than we are. And unless you uh, sort of respond to us in the way that we deem fit, then we have the right to kind of entirely cancel you out of existence. So canceling doesn't stop with not allowing somebody to speak at a meeting. Canceling goes on and on and on and on, where you virtually made or rendered invisible from everyday public life. We are fast running out of time. It's been a, a fantastic discussion so far, but just, just before we uh, let you go, Frank, because you are a prolific writer, you have yet another book coming out soon, Democracy Under Siege, Don't Let Them Lock It Down. Just before we head off, tell us your thesis. What is this new book about? I wrote the book because I've noticed that, if, uh, that almost every book that's published on democracy says that there's too much democracy. There's something wrong with democracy. The people cannot be trusted. People make uh, wrong decisions. They're not really rational. And uh, people are more or less saying that democracy is okay as long as you have the right outcome. If you don't have the right outcome, then we need something else. And the thesis of my book is a very simple one. It's basically is this, which is, that democracy is important not because of the outcome that democracy brings about, but democracy is a good in and of itself. It's a value in and of itself. And it's only when we live democracy, when you and I and other people actually live as democratic citizens, that we can create the kind of public life that provides opportunities for us to develop our humanity and create the kind of world that is, to some extent, uh, fairer and, and, and more uh, future-oriented uh, than the world at the moment. And uh, I make the point that democracy is a risk. It's a very risky form of, uh, uh, of kind of governance, but it's a risk that's well worth taking. Well, uh, it sounds like it's going to be an optimistic treatise on democracy as opposed to, as you said, a lot of the anti-democracy commentary that's out there that I've, uh, I've gone down a rabbit hole reading once or twice myself. So everyone keep an eye out for that book. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And uh, we'll have to get you back, Frank, when it's, when it's out. Great talking to you. I'm Monica Wilkie, and I hope you enjoyed this chat. For decades, the CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working tirelessly to produce evidence-based public policy. We rely solely on the generosity of people such as yourselves. To check out how you can get involved, see the links on screen now, and to be notified of future videos, hit that subscribe button and then hit that notification bell.